Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Music for Education and Wellbeing podcast. Join us each month to hear ideas, inspiration and practical advice from people making change through music. These conversations are hosted by me, Anita Holford of Music Education Works and Writing Services. So I'll be focusing in particular on breaking down barriers to music through communication and advocacy, but from quite a broad perspective. I really hope you'll enjoy them. And now on with the show. So hello, it's Anita here and welcome to this month's podcast. In this episode, I'm talking with Penny Swift, Executive Director, and Catherine Dancola, Director of National Activities for Education Through Music, which is a New York-based organisation working with under-resourced schools to provide music education as a core subject and a catalyst to improve academic achievement, motivation for school and self-confidence. So why I thought you'd be interested is is because of its success, both in terms of its growth over the last few years in an environment which, as we all know, is really difficult for music education and because of its focus on using evaluation, not only to prove its impact, but also importantly, to understand what works and how to make it even more effective. So I'm particularly pleased to have Education Through Music on the show because I've been following them for years. So a massive welcome, Penny and Catherine, and thank you so much for joining us here today. Well, we're always delighted when we could share our mission and we can tell everyone about what we've been accomplishing. Of course, whatever we say, uh, we invite everyone to come and see it firsthand because that's when you really could see what we are accomplishing. Brilliant. I'll be over next weekend then. <laughs> there you go. Okay. It's a typical New York thing. You know, you've got to come down here. And I have to say we're from New York because you would never know it by our accent. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. So before we go on to ask the main questions, can I ask you both, how did you end up where you are today? Um, why is it so important to you personally? Yeah. Actually, Anita, this is Kathy, and I'm going to start first, only because the first and second questions kind of blend in. I have been an educator all my life. About 25 years ago, um, I transitioned from elementary teaching into um, a leadership position. I became a principal of a school, and it was a school that was slated for closure. I'm going to make a very long story short. I met two lovely gentlemen who had just started a 501c3 called Education Through Music with the mission that you had just shared, using music as a catalyst and integrating into the academic subject to support academic achievement and general development. It sounds wonderful, but when an attorney and a businessman bring an educator, a mission statement, the hair in the back of my neck kind of goes up. <laughs> uh, so I, I took it and I really designed a complete education, music education program for the school that I was currently the principal at. And it was not to save the school because I knew that we couldn't, but it was give the children a very well-rounded learning experience. And throughout this conversation, you'll hear Penny and I really talk about equity and access. And it really is so true to our mission that every child is served in a school. So I implemented a music education program. What they didn't tell me when I took over the school is that 75% of the children that we were serving that year were uh, very challenged. Many of them were reading below the 29th percentile, which is a catch-all for every emotional and social problem. Now here's where the story gets really quick. Four years later, the school did not close, but um, at that time, President Clinton gave us a National Women's School of Excellence Award because the children that we were serving who were on achieving well below were now achieving way above. And the only variable we had at that time was music education. So at that point, I left and became executive director of ETM. I stayed here for 25 years, and uh, we went from serving 200 children to serving currently today under Penny's leadership. 34,000 children. There we go. So that's the ETM story and how I got involved with this. So music has always been a part of my life, although I was not a music teacher. And I've always felt that children needed a hook something to get them excited about learning. I always say to parents, find that hook. And if you do, you will motivate your children and they will love. And the arts does that better than anything. It generally not only motivates them, but helps them connect to those transferable skills and make them great readers, great mathematicians and lifelong learners. 
education through music is not star search by any means. It's really about providing a quality, well-rounded learning experience for the children we serve. And ironically, uh, mine and Cassie's histories are run somewhat parallel. I'm a lifelong educator myself, started out as a New York City public school, high school teacher, and over the years took a little bit of a transformation in my career and wound up in the early childhood field. Ironically, it's about two years ago this week that I had the opportunity to join Education Through Music first as the Chief Operating Officer. As the organization was really poised for substantial growth, there was a, a great rec recognition on behalf of the board that in order for the executive director to really be much more outwardly facing at some point and to provide stability to the internal portion of the organization, a chief operating officer was probably the best, best way to go. And that's how I started my career with education through music. Mm -hmm. My passion is in education, first, second, and third. Part of the irony is that I don't have a music background. And I think that is what drives me as much as anybody else, believe it or not, for the simple reason I want to make sure that people have an experience that I did not have. I am a product of New York City Public Schools education where there were budget cuts and we did not have music education. So I was very fortunate to be able to walk into an organization where I was able to marry, you know, the talents that I have in the operational field, as well as continue to ensure that under-resourced communities received truly the meaning of a well-rounded education. And it was the perfect time for Penny to come in because as she was transitioning from COO to CEO, I was transitioning out of executive director into helping cities across the United States become um, ETMs. Uh, about 15 years ago, we started an affiliate office in LA, which is incredibly successful today. And we just launched our second affiliate in Denver, Colorado. So we're very excited and we're in conversations with other cities in order to establish affiliates to bring music education into schools. And it is a very sustainable model, which many organizations can say. Lovely, that's brilliant. And just before we go on to other questions about education through music, can you just tell me a little bit about the context for music education in the US in schools at the moment? Because in England particularly, it's quite shaky to be frank. Yeah, so I mean, is, is music education compulsory? Uh, well, you know, on the books it is. I think, unfortunately, um, they're on the state charters, there is a line for music education as part of a, a comprehensive and sequential education. However, implementing that, budget cuts come and um, music educators are the first ones to be cut. I find that um, large cities, urban environments, do not have music education. I'd say even in New York, about 50% of the schools do not have music education. And this is a cultural hub. Whereas outside of New York City, you'll find a more affluent communities where there are very strong music education programs. And then ensembles that are built and then opportunities for children to use those skills to get into great schools. So there is um, the haves and have nots, very much so in the United States in terms of music. And although it's in the New York State Charter that students in New York City are supposed to receive music education, mm -hmm. the way the principals get around that is they'll bring in a, a teaching artist for a short period of time and provide more of an enrichment program for maybe six, eight or 12 weeks. But it's not touching every student or every child in the school, whereas education through music we provide equity and access to every child in the school. So it's, it's not like somebody's walking in and just the second grade is getting music or, or the fourth grade, which is how they kind of skirt around the charter. Right, we want to put ourselves out of business, uh, like any good not-for-profit should, and bring music and have every child have access to quality music education. We may not see it in our lifetime, but we're still working hard to see that happen. And actually, can I kind of jump ahead a little bit? Because it seems an appropriate time to ask you about the funding model. So how do you actually fund it and the sort of sustainability for schools? We are yes. a diversified funding model. And I'll let Penny, who's she has the budget in front of her right now, Anita. <laughs> so um, I, I think one of the things, and Kathy mentioned it before, why we believe we're so sustainable is because our intent is to very much put ourselves out of business, right? Our intent is that every teacher that we hire and that is originally on our payroll and is placed within the school district on what we call the DOE or the Department of Education's 
the, our expectation is that they will be hired by the Department of Education at some point. And that's our intent on how we can put ourselves out of business. But there's, we also ensure that the schools have some skin in the game. So for every dollar we spend, there's about 40% on the dollar that the Department of Education reimburses us for. So our lift on every dollar is about 60%. It's about a 40-60 split. And the 60% is very diversified. Correct. There is foundations, corporations, individuals, a, a big gala, which is happening with a significant part of the budget, maybe 15% of the budget. Comes from the gala. Yeah, about gala, 15%. 15%. But, you know, we have a very generous board. We currently have 22 members, um, and they are very generous, not just with their time, but with financial resources as well. And then, you know, we diversify our fundraising and our revenue from the development side of it between major gifts, individual giving, foundations, government. So we recognize that for every school we have to take on, there's a heavy lift, and that sometimes impacts our ability to grow as well, as much as we'd love to grow. Um, we have to recognize that there's a fin financial lift, but we certainly ensure that the schools that we partner with have to contribute something towards the financial success of the program, at least. And our affiliates are the same way. We absolutely help design their financial base, so they do have a very diversified funding stream, um, do get income from the schools, and it's a really, I, we've been a very healthy organization. So when you actually go into a new school, are you saying that the school will pay a certain proportion of that initial one-year program or whatever it might be? That's correct. They sign actually like a memorandum of agreement or an MOA, and they pay us a portion of our costs as well. Because remember, it's not just the teacher that they're paying for, right? With that teacher comes uh, mentoring and coaching support for that teacher, observation support, support for the principal. Um, we provide concert support, a curriculum, benchmarks, an accompanist for the spring and winter concerts. And most importantly, the big piece of it is the staff and professional development that each, each teacher receives. Each teacher receives equal to 100 hours of staff development throughout the year. So that is, that is very much the success of our program and something that we are very passionate about. That uh, the child's success is really based on the teacher's success. Yeah, and it starts also, Anita, with the principal, the leadership yeah. of the school. You know, the leadership's have more autonomy over their budgets now than they ever have before and there are discretionary funds that they could decide where to allocate those those monies and after speaking with penny um prior to you know or me or any of the etm staff i think we do a really good job of helping them to understand how allocating dollars towards a, a music education position really benefits everyone in the entire school. And you do see a paradigm shift. Our goal is to walk into a school that is really doom and gloom, has nothing. And then a year later, parents, all the stakeholders in the school cannot wait to come back in. There is a real paradigm shift from that very unhappy place to learn to this very exciting, motivating place to learn. And we see that every time we take on a school. Well, I'll go on to ask you a little bit more about your advocacy efforts. Just to clarify, so around about what percentage of the costs does the school contribute? Close to 40%. We aim for 40%. It could be closer to 37 or 38, but our goal is... And so would it be that after a year, you'd expect the school to sort of take on the tutor and pay for all those costs themselves, or maybe with extra fundraising? How does that work? So when we first... Our first conversation with the principal is that uh, in order to really partner with us, we have an expectation within two to three years that the principal will find the funding to hire that teacher. If he or she, if the principal doesn't, there's a good possibility that teacher is going to leave and, and find uh, a position with the Department of Education somewhere else. So in order to provide consistency of care for the program and consistency of care for the children, we certainly encourage the principal to really try and figure that out. We're not here to be a safety net for 10 years for the principal to be able to provide 
a comprehensive music education program at a reduced cost, right? We're here to set them up for success, show them how we can be, quote unquote, their assistant principal in music education, especially for those principals who may not have a music background, right? They could be the experts in classroom management or pedagogical skills elsewhere, but may not be the musical experts. So we're there to support them but we can't be sustainable to be in a program for 10 years. They have to find a way to, to finally hire that teacher. And you know, I think with the, the care and feeding that we provide our teachers, many of the principals are calling Penny up like three months after their program is starting and saying, I need to hire this teacher. Um, and uh, that's very that's very exciting. And we often say, no, you need to wait because we need that teacher to have a, a good year. But it's not fair for the teachers. You know, we're not in competition with the Department of Education. We want these teachers to have a real career in education, to have all the benefits that the Department of Education can provide for them. We are kind of a segue into that world. We're not in competition with the DOE. You know, they their salaries on the Department of Education, which is city contracts are certainly above what we're able to pay our teachers. So could you just clarify, because a lot of the listeners won't be from the United States or, from, or know much about how um, the education system works over in New York. So what, what is the Department for Education and what's their relationship with the music teachers that you employ or what will their eventual relationship be? So the New York City Department of Education, I believe, is one of the largest teachers, teacher unions within the United States. Is also a very strong and powerful union from a very political standpoint. It's also 1,100 schools, right. and that doesn't include the high schools. I think with high schools, we're at about 1,800. Yeah, so they, they have a strong power. Um, they're very strong lobbying as well. They are well-paid individuals. Uh, they're certainly in for a fair, fair market value for their positions, but it's certainly uh, an arena in which we can't compete with when it comes to the benefits that they're provided under the Department of Education contracts, nor the salaries, nor do we want to be in competition. Again, our goal is that the teacher is certainly working towards, if they're not already, being a certified teacher so that they can be hired. So we support them being hired. We consider that a success when the principal wants to hire a teacher. So all teachers in New York schools are hired by the Department for Education, including those music tutors or music teachers? With the exception of parochial schools and charter schools, New York, if it's, if it's a New York City public school, yes. Uh, right. So, so for that brief period when you're working with a school, you're employing those teachers because you're mentoring them, you're giving them all that support, and then it's a case of they get employed after that one year. Yeah, if not a year, no more than three years. But then when the teacher is hired, while we consider that a success, that's not where our support ends. We will continue to partner with the school at a different support level if the principal is still interested. So as I mentioned before, the principal may not be able to go in and do the classroom observation. We will continue to provide staff development to that teacher because the New York City Department of Education may not have the bandwidth or the resources to do so. So although it's a DOE teacher, we're still providing staff development mm -hmm. if the principal chooses to partner with us. We'll still provide instructional supervisors support and observations where we'll sit with the principal and sit in on an observation um, to help support them in that realm also. This is very much about supporting the teacher continuously. They get evaluated, um, very strong evaluations, right. several times during the year. And we want to make sure that they get tenured, where they have some job security in that position. So we provide them with all the tools that they need. But also being a partner comes with, you know, if we get a major grant on instruments, we provide um, resources to the schools. We've gotten sometimes just great um, materials and supplies for the classrooms that are just invaluable to the teachers. We also provide them with professional development during the summer, the opportunity to take off certification or Kodai certification or um, eventually Dalcro certification. So there are many opportunities for the teachers to grow even within their own vocation, which is absolutely key. That's um, fantastic. And you, you fund that training. We fund a significant part of that training. There are, um, like Penny says, about 100 hours of training that are free to the teachers under the ETM umbrella. But the significant discount 
to get off training as an ETM teacher is, is absolutely remarkable. I'm not surprised that sounds incredible. So one my one of my questions was, you know, what does the delivery model involve? So obviously you, you sort of started telling me about the aspect which is around the music teachers and all the support they get, which seems to be absolutely central to your delivery model. Is there anything else you wanted to tell me about what's unique about your pedagogy or the genres or instruments you use, that type of thing? I the curriculum I think is probably, you know, giving teachers benchmarks of achievement for every grade level that goes with the national standards of the arts and the state standards of the arts, really hold them, the teachers accountable to teaching those knowledges and skills that children need to learn on each grade level and assessing those skills because there has to be some level of teacher assessment that children are learning musical skills. Very, very important. Yeah, and just to add to that, New York City has adopted what's called the Danielson Framework, which is an assessment tool that principals use to assess the effectiveness of a teacher in the classroom. We actually have aligned the Danielson Framework with music curriculum so that we can ensure, just like in math and science and social studies, when a teacher is observed, that the same rubric that is being used to assess their effectiveness as any other classroom teacher is being used in the same sort of criteria to assess the music teacher as well. So um, we brought somebody in specifically to do that. So our teachers are well aware of what the benchmarks are and how to be successful and what that rubric looks like for them as opposed to what it looks like for the math or English or social studies teacher. Uh, right. And so do you provide a kind of curriculum that your music tutors follow or a framework for a curriculum? It's a, it's a framework. There are benchmarks of achievement um, for each grade level, but we don't take the art out of teaching. We don't give teacher a lesson plan. We give them a, a skill that they have to learn um, in dynamics, meter, tempo, um, and they design lesson plans that are approved by their field supervisors and reviewed by their field supervisors and observed by their field supervisors. You know, every lesson has to be engaging. Every lesson has to give an opportunity for a child to move and sing and to learn. And you want to make sure that the, the lessons are very stimulating and very much involved for the students. So they are excited to come to music class. And so it's what we in the UK call whole class teaching. So you're mainly teaching um, musical skills through instrumental teaching. Is that right? You can, mm -hmm. yes, absolutely. Um, the voice is very important. Um, there are lots of instruments in the classroom, um, the glockenspiels, and there are per the small percussion instruments. Um, eventually, our, when our students get to um, fourth grade, which they're about nine years old, um, we introduce ensembles. So there is opportunities for bands and orchestra. They can select to be in that. There's also a select chorus after school for the children, but singing is a part of the curriculum. And then is there anything else about your style of teaching that, you know, is it particularly influenced by anybody? You mentioned Wolf. Is that sort of an integral well, think, part of well, your... I think, uh, I think good teaching is, is, should be very diversified. I, don't, I think it's like when you decorate a house. You don't only go one style. You really want <laughs> to bring in a variety of, of different uh, furniture styles. You want to bring in a more eclectic style. So even the choice of music from classical to um, more contemporary music, I think children, it's like when you teach reading. You know, I've, I taught reading for many years to early childhood, and you diversify the genres that you bring in. You do a variety of different, and then eventually children choose what they love. But you do the same thing in good music education. And you mentioned on your website about your approach being very child-centered. And I wondered if that extends to, particularly maybe when they're older, them being able to sort of have a say or direct their own learning journey. Yeah, I mean, that's specifically true in our middle school model. Uh, typically, middle schools in, in New York City run 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. And that's when the students really have the opportunity around the seventh, eighth grade level to select the type of competency they'd like to see themselves involved in when it comes to, so it could be world drumming, it, it might be some other, it might be guitar, it might be chorus, it might be band or orchestra. So we recognize at that age, that's when children and students want to have a sense of autonomy about choices about 
what they want to participate in. Uh, they certainly have that opportunity to, to make selections in some of their other educational courses. So rather than continuing to provide them at that point or insist upon comprehensive music education like a general music class, we give them more of a choice of what they, they like to um, opt into. Um, one of the other choices might be um, a music technology class, which is something we've really been trying to provide. We've had some support from various funders to help us with that. Our goal is to ensure that if they could use this music technology in the middle school stages, hopefully they'll continue it at the high school stages and possibly help with workforce development at some point as well. Oh, wow, so that's brilliant. So you work across both what we call in this um, country primary education, so up to age 11, as well as then um, secondary education, which is 11 to 18. And, and you might be working there might be an example where you're working in a school with a young person and then you see them in the next school that they move on to. Would that happen? So just because you're working across both those levels of schools, you could actually continue that child's education through maybe quite a fair amount of their education. Well, that's, that's ultimately our goal, to make sure there's that sort of consistency, right? We don't want to cut any child off at the knees at age 12 or 13 and say, we're, we're so glad that we were able to provide this for you. Currently, we're not in the high school space. We are in conversations with two high schools uh, for the, not the 2019-2020 school year, but the following school year. It's certainly our goal. Um, we've been working on it for quite some time. So right now, our middle school ends at eighth grade, which is about 13, 14 years old. But we're also, in order to get to a high school, we're ensuring that we're in elementary and middle schools that feed into that district high school. It wouldn't behoove anybody if we went into a high school that didn't have students who've had general music education prior to them. And this, it, it would be a little bit more challenging if it was the first time they had a general music education class. So we're trying to, you know, build the first floor and then the second floor before we get to the first, third floor, ensuring that we're in a substantial number of elementary schools that feed into uh, a number of middle schools that then feed into high schools. Yeah, absolutely. That makes total sense. And how many schools yeah. are you in in New York at the moment? And what percentage is that of the schools there? So currently this year, we're in 65 partner schools. Our goal next year is to be in 70 to 72 partner schools, and then the following year, close to 80 partner schools. But there are roughly 1,800 schools in New York. Um, and about out of that 1,800, we believe maybe 57% of them don't have a comprehensive music education class. Even if it's 50% out of that 1,800, that brings that number down to 900. And if we're in 65, you're talking seven to eight percent. Yeah, except that over the years, we've had teachers hired. So there's Correct. about 30 or 40 teachers out there who were originally part of ETM and now have gone on to be part of the Department of Education, which we're very excited about. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it, in terms of legacy. And so you were saying that you will have a tutor or tutors in schools for sort of one to three years. And how does that work? Do they go in for one day a week generally, or is it more than that? It really depends on the size of the school because we see every student in every class, even those special needs classrooms as well. Nobody's excluded. So if we have a school with 500 students or so, the teacher is probably there five days a week. Yeah. A school with maybe 150 or 200 students, we certainly might be able to manage a teacher there two days a week. That's great to hear you going to special education needs classes as well. And I guess you need specific specialisms for that. You need to. We do. We, um, at the beginning of the school year, we provide, we, we bring in an outside facilitator. We actually fly her in. Oh. <laughs> she's she's yeah, she's so great at what she does, and she comes each year by, with great demand from our staff. And we continue that sort of training throughout the year with providing support within, for integrated co-couture classrooms as well. And that's a, an ICT classroom is where there are mainstream students alongside students with an IEP or with special needs. Yeah, in New York City today, out of your classroom is quite large. You could be um, 25 to 30 students Easily. in a classroom. There's such a range of learning challenges and abilities within that class and giving the responsibility to a new teacher on how they're going to excite and energize those children to want to learn you have to give them the tools to be able to do that you know they absolutely need tools to be successful in that classroom and they need the support 
And that's one of the bedrocks of education through music that we have such a tremendous support team for these teachers and a network where they can talk to each other and come after school to the office uh, where there are resources and materials, where they feel part of a community of learners. You know, I say when you educate a teacher, you educate a nation. We definitely want our children to have that access and use every part of their brain, which we definitely believe that music education does. Definitely does, doesn't it? And there's loads of evidence to show that now. Moving on to another question, you, you've got a lot of evidence of impact and you clearly invested a lot in evaluation. Can you just talk me through what you're aiming to achieve beyond those musical outcomes, so the social and personal outcomes, and, and also perhaps give me some examples of that. And I'm particularly interested in how you make sure that those young people who find it difficult to engage in learning for whatever reason are able to engage. Yeah, I mean, so I, I think you're referring specifically to our, our evaluation or impact report, right, which we are, and, and thank you for recognizing that the need. A lot of work went into it, but the baseline year of information that we're starting to gather, right, our goal is really to have a longitudinal study where we can follow students over years, especially with our intent of getting into a high school, the impact on graduation rates or the impact on how music education might support students with their college application process, right? Just a couple of things to point out from the impact report thing is that children shared how they attended school where they would have originally skipped school for that day had it not been for their music education class and how students shared the social and emotional impact about how they were able to make friends because of their music class. You know, th there's such a big conversation, I'm gonna say in the United States, but I think it's outside of the United States as well, about bullying. And not that I'm saying that we can alleviate bullying altogether, but if children feel connected and they feel they're a friend, that's a great source of comfort for them. Students who feel engaged and comfortable and confident will come to school and at the end of the day, they will learn. So we like to think of music as the catalyst for that sort of education. We're not here to say that music is necessarily is growing their math score or growing their language arts score, but it's absolutely a catalyst in supporting it. And it's also, again, if it's the hook that's bringing them into school, students who are present will learn. But our goal is to really do more of a longitudinal study where we can see greater impact year over year yeah, and so, you know, evaluation started several years ago in the organization, but not at the level it is now because we really wanted to do the impact. It really started because we wanted to improve. We wanted to make sure that our teacher training was really the best that teachers could have. So we needed to evaluate that. We needed to make sure that our benchmarks and our curriculum was really supporting the classroom and the teacher and the children were learning. So we needed to evaluate that. So in the beginning, all our evaluation was really very focused internal because we wanted to be the best we could be. And we stayed under the radar for a very long time um, until we felt that we really had it together. We're so proud of what we've accomplished now. And that's one of the reasons why we are going national and why we in some ways going international because we have a foundation in Chile who has adopted our model and there has been interest from someone in Costa Rica. So we're very excited at the fact that we don't want to hide this light under the bushel barrel, as they say. We really want it to shine. We want to share best practices, and but it's not a short-term, isolated, fragmented part of the curriculum. It has to be both comprehensive and sustainable. So many funders are putting dollars into music education, and five years down the road, we see nothing that benefits it. Education for Music brings in certified teachers and gets them hired by the school. It is the way that your dollars go to work. So anyone who invests in this organization will really see the benefits of it long-term. I mean, at the end of the day, it really validates at a very high professional, unbiased level the work that we're doing, right? Mm -hmm. To have it validated at such a high level speaks volumes to our funders. And you mentioned other people being interested in your model, and I'm sure people in the UK and beyond who listen to this podcast would be interested in it. Is there a way that they can talk to you about possibly being involved or using some aspect for your model? We are really at a position now, uh, both Penny and I are absolutely available 
to take those calls and to learn. You know, for us, it's also a learning experience. We're finding out what's happening in other parts of the world where there are wonderful things happening, sharing aspects of our model, learning from each other, providing stronger professional development to organizations that are bringing music education to school, but are struggling with how to really develop and, and enrich and enhance their teachers' um, ability to provide great music. So yes, we are absolutely available and um, very grateful to you to get the word out. Absolutely. <laughs> At the end of the day, our goal is to impact the greatest number of children. That's right. It's all about the child. Right. And that's, that's our motto. Brilliant. It's so exciting to hear that you're rolling out in that way. Um, can I come back to a little sort of a more detailed question really now? You work specifically with um, schools in areas of poverty and, and often they're the young people who have the most challenges in engaging in learning, might have behavioural and emotional difficulties, all sorts of other things that are affecting their learning. Over here in the UK, there's kind of quite a big movement around musical inclusion, as we call it. So making sure that specifically those young people can really engage in music education and that they aren't left out because they do face so many barriers and trying to sort of embed an approach where young people's voices at the centre, where the music leaders really understand those young people and the challenges they face and how to educate given those young people's situations and given their needs just interested to know from your experience if as you know do you provide specific training around that yeah you know look we have the same issue in um, New York and in other parts of the country um, we serve some of the poorest congressional districts in the United States South Bronx credit Hunts Point it's incredibly incredibly poor I mean uh, but I found that in many cities wonderful artists are really passionate and cultural organizations, your orchestras, your um, conservatories are really very, very, in some ways they're horrified that the children are not getting music education. So they're starting all these initiatives. They're bringing artists into the schools or they, or the orchestra is bringing kids into the orchestra. And these are one-time isolated, fragmented experiences. And, you know, at some point, yes, do they work? But it's not fair. It's not equity and access. It needs to happen first and foremost at the school. Children should not have to go anywhere to experience music education. They should have it in their school first and foremost. The enrichment part of it through El Sistema and the Harmony could happen after school. It is unfair. Um, and we're like dogs with a bone when it comes to this. Right. We just do not feel that it is in any way fair to children to have, or to have five children in a class out of 30 experience music education. How do you tell a parent that your child's class is gonna have experiences, but no one else's? And that's what's happening. These artists are meaningful and they have their hearts in their hands. The orchestras are meaningful. They are worried about building audiences someday, but we need to educate the child. That is first. It, it's ironic because what we're talking about is sometimes the neediest of children who need the most opportunity. And often because they're not come from a privileged background or living in a zip code in New York that can afford music education, um, that they're provided with it, right? So right. it's the two different ends of the bell curve. Here you have children who need the greatest opportunity and are being provided with the least amount of opportunities. So part of our mission is that we ensure that the schools that we enter are what, or for the most part, about 98% of our schools are what we consider Title I funding, right? Mm -hmm. uh, a school with Title I funding has a certain percentage of students or families that receive free and reduced lunch. And that's how we try to benchmark what schools that we'll partner with, right? And in many of our schools, it's 100% because the poverty line is so well below. So I, I don't want to sound repetitive, but it's just something that is very near and dear to myself and Kathy that somebody's zip code or, or where their family is coming from um, or because they're in a homeless shelter wouldn't be provided with an opportunity that some, some other child in a different zip code. We, we use these buzzwords like lifelong learners and well-rounded education and well-rounded children. Well, I think in order for, to ensure that we really truly have lifelong learners, and you know, well-rounded children, we need to provide them with all the tools so they can be, go on both of those paths. 
Absolutely. Do you feel that your, your kind of training of tutors, just going back to my original question, do you feel that the training of tutors is very specific or different because you work with those, those type of schools and those type of young people who are probably facing all sorts of challenges in their lives and maybe chaotic backgrounds, etc.? So, so when, when we screen candidates, we make sure that they are, we do our best, I should say, to ensure that they are comfortable in the neighborhoods that we are serving, right? We, we hire teachers, quite a few of our teachers do not come from the New York or the tri-state area. So they, this may be their first time in an environment similar to a very urban education environment like New York City. But it, I, I would say at the end of the day, a good educator is a good educator. And if they have good classroom management experience, they'll be able to be successful. So although we don't have specific training for, you know, uh, the urban environment, we're certainly, excuse me, screening candidates to ensure that there's a comfort level um, working in, in the environment. Oh, that's interesting. Thank you. Anything else that you wanted to say before I go on to the next question about your training of music educators and how you choose the music educators? Not specifically that, but there is just one other thing that, you know, I wanted to share about the success of our program that I thought about afterwards. You know, although we're there, we're there to support, obviously, the music educators, I think the one thing that stands us apart is that we also go in and work with the non-music teachers. We provide staff development and professional development to the other classroom teachers as well. So they have a, a full understanding of what the music program is there for, that, again, we're not there just for, for the auditorium or for a concert, but we're there to help support them in their classrooms as well. And we'll share with them how we, they can integrate music and the music lesson into their classroom, which is unique to our model. And that's really important, isn't it? Because over here in the UK, I think one of the things we find is that there are a lot of non-specialist teachers who are saying that they'd like to be able to do music within their classroom. And actually, it's an expectation of them, but they just don't have the confidence. Right. So the math teacher could be talking about fractions. And we can bring music into the conversation for fractions, you know. So again, making sure that it's truly integrated into the curriculum. And it really builds a nice collaborative relationship between the music educator and the classroom teacher. So they can really discuss how they can connect learning. If they're talking about plot, character, and sequence, they can certainly can talk about the magic flute and music classroom and bring in a plot, character, and sequence. And then their children are reinforcing some of that learning that's happening in the language arts classroom or in the English classroom. So there are many opportunities to collaborate, but that comes also with that professional development that Penny discussed, where we work with the classroom teachers, share with them what's happening in the music classroom, so they feel a tie-in. And at the end of the day, if we do our job really well, that classroom teacher looks great, because you have a great motivated learner, they're doing better in academic subjects. The child is happier. Uh, and believe me, the classroom teacher is a lot happier too. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, that sounds amazing. So talking about the classroom teacher and the, and the relationship with the school, um, on your website, you talk about partnering with education through music. And it feels to me like it's sort of a very different approach than an organization just trying to sell in a service to a school. You have a pre-qualification questionnaire, which I think is quite unusual. I've not seen that before. And so I just wonder if you could tell me a little bit about how that relationship with schools works and what expectations do you have of schools as partners? Well, the pre-question questionnaire is to make sure that the principal understands, you know, that this is very much a partnership. We're not there just to provide music education so that the classroom teacher has the prep period, right? That they certainly understand, while we may be the music, the experts in music education, there's an expectation on their part that they're going to be inclusive of our program as well, that they will include the music teacher in their staff activities, that they will have a spring concert and a winter concert, that they'll ensure that our work is being engaged in the rest of the building, um, but that they respect the work that we do and that they respect our teacher most importantly, that they're willing to work alongside of us. We're not there to walk in and tell them how to run their building, but we're there, I always say, to set them up for success or make them look good at the end of the day. Right, so the, the memorandum of agreement really outlines the roles and responsibilities that we provide to the school, but what we expect the school to provide. So that's clearly defined. And when that's clearly defined, um, the relationship starts really on a good foot. 
but I think we do a lot of work with the principal before. I mean, even when we are deciding whether or not to partner with a school, there's several conversations with the principal and visits to the school or the principal will come to the office. We're really building a strong relationship. And, and you said it before, Anita, it is very unique because I've always say the, the leadership of the school is key. If a leader of a school loves basket weaving, trust me, everyone in the school is going to basket weave. <laughs> yeah. So we have, to, we have to get that principle to really value music education. And very often, the leaders that we work with have never had music in their life. Like Penny right. said before, they went through their education in New York City when the arts were taken out. And they will say, the first thing they'll say to us is, I did fine. Why do my kids need music education? And it is up to us to really cultivate and to help that teacher understand why that well-rounded learning experience is so key. And at the end of the day, they do. And they are, maybe because of the memorandum agreement, all, everything is outlined, maybe because they see our impact report, maybe because they've seen other schools that have it, the relationship has to start out on a good foot. And it really does. I mean, these principles are close friends with Penny now. Right, right. I mean, I, I think the key point, though, is really that they value the work that we do mm -hmm. and, and, and the relationship, right? That's the intent behind it. That's really interesting that you've said that it takes a long time to build that with each school, because I think sometimes an organization might sort of see themselves as marketing to a school and the school buying that in and it's a kind of very quick process between that initial engagement and then actually delivering in the school and then that doesn't really make for a good long-term relationship where there's a real understanding of the values and what you're trying to achieve so how important is that, that communication and advocacy and, and actually what's your secret how do you do it because you were saying some of these teachers head teachers or principals as you call them are saying well, why, why is this important? You know, how do you take somebody on that journey from, I didn't have it, why, why is it important to being an absolute champion for what you do? I think the first thing is that most of the principals who are interested in partnering, partnering with us reach out to us first. So there's an inherent intent on their part to, to gather more information about what we do. It's not like we're cold calling anybody. I mean, we do go out and, and host principal breakfasts. We do ask our our current partnership principles to spread the word out. So there's a little bit less of a lift because they're interested in partnering with us to begin with. It's not really that hard of a sell, but it's the transparent communication from the very first meeting, you know, whether or not we get a good feeling, whether this principal really wants us there or doesn't want us there. I think what's important to note is that it's important for, for there to be a, a, a good working relationship with the principal because otherwise that would teach it feels like they're, they're stuck in the middle. It's kind of like a, a child being fought over, you know, with two divorced parents, right? <laughs> like, because the principal could be telling them one thing and we could be telling the teacher something else. And if there's not that strong prince, that, that strong partnership, the teacher's going to suffer. And we do everything to make sure that we're supporting the teacher and that the teacher isn't suffering. So, you know, there are conversations and, and we'll share with those principals who may not have had a full understanding of the value of, of music education. But typically when they made that first call or submitted their first online interest application, there's been a teaser already and they're, they're looking to hear more about us already. And so that teaser is probably from hearing from other principals. Is that the first step, do you think? Quite often it is, or, you know, there are district superintendents that have all their principals at a meeting. We have a very close relationship with our district superintendents, and they'll often invite us to speak for five to seven minutes, you know, kind of get the word out, and then we can spend some time individually with the principals afterwards. Yeah, I think when you get the principal who is questioning this, it's because they know that they need to provide some music experience in their school. They want to check off that box that they've done that, yeah. even though it's not to every single child. And when they hear our model that it serves every single child, that's where they start to question, well, why do we have to do that? So we absolutely, we absolutely then go through the process of why comprehensive and sequential music education versus just an outreach or a short-term isolated 
experience or an assembly program for right, the kids. Right. And that's where they say, well, I don't understand. I didn't have that. Why? And sure. so then we shift it around. So but most, like Penny's right, most of the principals who come to us hear about us from other principals or read the website. And sometimes the call is just, just to gather information. And by the end of the conversation, they are really looking to be a partner. We've got them hooked. Yeah. <laughs> so finally, could you give us three practical pieces of advice or perhaps three calls to action for others working in music education who are listening? Maybe things that you'd like to see happen in music education in the next three years? Yeah, I mean, none of this is very fancy or anything like that when it comes to, to the practical pieces of advice. But again, for those in the educational field and those that have the power to make the change, and I'm sorry if I sound like I'm on my soapbox, we use these buzzwords, lifelong learners, right? We use another buzzword, um, well-rounded educated students. We need to put our money where our mouth is and do something about it. The privileged children shouldn't be the only ones who are well-rounded children or lifelong learners. Mm -hmm. so, so that's kind of like my advice when it comes to, if there's a need, let's try and figure out how we can support mm -hmm. that need. We need to really put our money where our mouth is. The people that can do that, we need to ensure that we provide equity and access. Uh, there are some supporters out there that can do that, large and small, but it has to be a little bit more in the political realm as well. It's not a conversation, at least in New York, that happens enough. A lot of conversation about, you know, math scores, reading scores, science, social studies. I'd like to see our politicians talk more about the arts and music in general. But, uh, you know, the support is needed. It's, it's not a nice have, it's a must have. Yeah. And I would love the lead, school leadership when they are bringing music opportunities into the schools that they really think of equity and access. Yeah. And it's not a, a fragmented part of their school curriculum. They wouldn't only teach 100 kids out of 500 math. It really should be for every child within that school. So when they're partnering with an organization that's coming into the school and saying, I can bring you these great opportunities um, to, for a child to learn an instrument, but I only can serve 10 kids, I would open the door and say, we're not ready for you yet. <laughs> I really believe that principals have to make a stand or it won't, it just will continue the way it's going. And any, any sort of other advice you could give to people who are trying to advocate music education from, from your own experience? Because obviously you've been really successful and you're achieving significant growth. Talk to us, yeah. <laughs> because, and, I, and I don't mean that lightly, but people come in from very different perspectives. And if we could hear their story, perhaps we could share some of the experience we learned. We certainly don't have all the answers Anita and would never pretend to do, but that shared experience, hearing some of your challenges, maybe we've had the same ones. We're certainly open and very welcoming. So if anybody happens to be in the New York area at any time, we certainly were happy to take anybody on a site visit, meet them at our office. <laughs> Brilliant, I'm coming, you don't have to ask me twice. <laughs> um, but seriously, I think it would be really good to um, arrange some kind of collaboration or meeting or some conversations between yourselves and some of the people in the UK. Um, we'll try and do that. Thank you so much. That's the end of the show. It's been a really, really fascinating to hear how you meet some of those challenges in music education. And I've so enjoyed talking to you. So thank you both very much indeed. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank Thanks you for so reaching much. out, Anita. You're really Greatly welcome. appreciate it. Okay, good uh, luck. So if you want to read more about education through music, I'll share the links in the show notes. And thank you very much for listening. That's the end of our show this time. Thank you for listening to the Music for Education and Wellbeing podcast. And make sure to subscribe so that you get to hear about future episodes. If you'd like to be on the podcast or you'd like to know more about me and how I help music and creative organisations through communications, then visit writing-services.co.uk and get in touch. Thanks for listening and have a great week.